Welcome to Page, the podcast where writers dissect a single page of their book. I'm your host, Abby Hollick, and each week I'll be speaking to a different best-selling memoirist or non-fiction writer about their most frank, moving, or hilarious page. I pick the standout page that examines a breakthrough moment and invite the author to dig deeper. Along the way, we learn a thing or two about how to survive and cope with whatever life flings at us. Laura Dockrell is a writer, poet and illustrator. In 2018, a few weeks after the birth of her son, Laura was put on suicide watch in a psychiatric ward. She was suffering from paranoia, manic moods and severe delusions. Her memoir, What Have I Done?, charts her terrifying experience of postpartum psychosis a mental illness that affects around one in a thousand new mothers. Up until that point, Laura, like so many, had never even heard of postpartum psychosis, nor had she suffered from any other mental health condition. She promised herself that if she survived, she would never stop talking about it. What Have I Done? is the book she wished had existed when she gave birth. Her book, like her groundbreaking podcast Zombie Mum, bravely shatters the cult of perfect motherhood and breaks the silence around mental illness and parenting. Laura is an absolute fighter. She fought so hard for her own mental health and her survival offers such hope, reassurance and solidarity to anyone struggling. Laura, welcome. Oh my God, that introduction. Wow, thank you, Abby. (laughs) Oh, well, I loved your book so much. I just cried reading it. But but it's also not, I I know it goes obviously to some dark places, but it is full of so much hope. You are Mm. shouting out to other people to say, you can survive this. Yeah, you absolutely can. And I remember the doctor saying to me, you'll get better. You'll just go completely back to normal. And I thought, he's joking, isn't he? Like, I'm irreparable. I I honestly thought I was the worst case they'd ever seen. And, you know, in reality, I was strumping about, you know, like a chubby girl in a pink jumper wearing cupcake socks. But I honestly thought I was the worst case they'd ever seen. And to know, to get... Go back to, in fact, be more annoying than I even was before. I mean, that is a recovery and a half. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing. <sighs> so I picked page uh, 319 to 320 because I know how much you credit cognitive behavioural therapy for helping you in your recovery. So if you wouldn't mind reading that section, that would be brilliant. Integrating CBT into my life has changed my life. I couldn't imagine a life without it. I'm not even joking. As geeky as it sounds, my friends and I actually have dinner, wine and CBT evenings now, and it is great. We're taking care of ourselves and each other. Through CBT and REBT, which is Rational Emotional Behavioural Therapy, I now behave, would you believe it, like a scientist, not a storytelling, exaggerating drama queen. Both therapies at first will seem like a lot of work, but it is very much like creating a new path in your head. And the old one, with time, will become overgrown with disuse. It's like learning a new language. Yes, it takes practice, discipline and time, but one day it just connects and the new path is created. For example, one superstition I had was, if I don't put jet in this baby grow, I won't sleep tonight and I'll go mad again. And before I knew it, I could visualise myself in a padded cell for the rest of my days. But with cognitive behavioural therapy, this became Jet's baby grow does not determine in any way if I have a sleepless night or not. This is magical thinking and counts as an irrational, anxious thought. 
if I do have a sleepless night, which is highly unlikely as I've been sleeping very well, that does not indicate that I will go mad again because that is not how sleeplessness works. And I'm not under the same circumstances I was when I got sick previously. And even if I was to get sick again, I can tolerate it. I can cope. Look at what I've tolerated up until now. Yes, it starts off a bit pedantic in this way, but you will get used to it. You can exist perfectly happily alongside your fears. It won't happen overnight, but it will happen. Perfect. So I want to start by asking when and how you discovered cognitive behavioural therapy? Sure. Well, I should just start by saying that I was one of those naive, ignorant people that before getting unwell, you know, I hope I wouldn't have been one of those people that said cheer up or go for a walk, you know, but um, I just didn't believe it would happen to me. You know, I sort of thought there were people that get mentally unwell and there are people that aren't. So, you know, that's why at the end I wanted to apologise to it, you know, to people that I never really, you don't understand these words are thrown at you, depression or anxiety and even bigger scarier words like schizophrenia you just don't understand the meaning until you live it so CBT for me again was one of those things that I just didn't I thought oh what is that algebra like I just didn't think it was on my (laughs) radar and then um, when it was said explained to me I I just thought no no I'm not gonna lie I was like this is long this just sounds like school all over again and I know it's not going to go in my brain and I'm just not one of those people um but then, you know, I, I was so anti-taking the medication in the first place, which which helped me greatly. And I wouldn't, I don't think I'd be here in all honesty without medication. Um, and I noticed that there was a change in the meds when I started leaning into them, if that makes sense. Like instead of resisting them and going, why am I on these meds? No one else is on medication. This is so annoying. As soon as I thought, no, accept Laura, this is acceptance. I thought, hold on, why don't I just try that same attitude with the CBT? So I went along with it. It meant nothing to me. I won't lie. I was too ill at first to even understand what was being written on the board. I was I was on a lot of medication. I was very lethargic and zombified and um, poorly still. I still had delusions. And then... Um, I just bought myself loads of books and I read real life stories of survival, any sort of story of survival. So from alcoholism, depression, grief, whatever I could get and um, combined that with CBT. And I would, I'm not even joking, write it out like revision over and over. And I've got stacks of it. I've kept it all. I've got drawers of it of just writing out almost like the beginning of you know when Bart Simpson at the beginning of the Simpsons writes out his little thing on the chalkboard whatever that mantra is that would be whatever my fear was most of it was around uh, sleeplessness um and I did it until it stuck and a lot of it annoyingly is in language so it's you know you've got rigid beliefs basically so I must sleep tonight if I do not you know then this will happen and it's going I would prefer I would like and you think really but eventually and then um, the amazing podcast which is the blind boy podcast um where he has a few episodes on cognitive behavioral therapy and psychotherapy psychoanalysis and I just listened to them while I was having a run or a walk and I just applied that it was a combination of a kind of rogue combination I didn't do it a course but it, it really saved my bacon that stuff so how do you describe it to anyone who hasn't heard of CBT okay so it's it's basically because it is like a new language as you as you say have you done it before I've read some books on it and I found that the first thing is to not necessarily believe the thought and that was eye-opening you realize how much you just believe I know these awful things about yourself and then they bluff you don't they yeah I mean I I did google just to see what how kind of psychologists describe it and they 
they describe it as a problem-focused and action-orientated form of therapy mm. used to treat specific problems related to a diagnosed mental disorder. So you would have heard about it first in the psychiatric world, but of course, like you said, just being too ill to kind of comprehend that yeah. yet. So when when did it start to make sense to you and when and how do you describe it? Well, I remember at the hospital when we did CBT, they said, I can't remember whose quote it was, but they said something along, I'm probably paraphrasing, but it said, the only way out of misery is through the path of hell. I was like, ah, okay, <laughs> cool. And basically a lot of this, I'm not going to, you know, I don't want to pretend it is anything other, but it's extremely stoic. I mean, it is cold and hard. And if you go read some of the true hardcore CBT teachers, some of them are, it could be seen as mean, you know, it's kind of like, you know, this is not the worst it could get, you know, trust me, it could be worse. Nothing is a hundred percent bad and it's just accept and move on. And it's harsh, but actually I kind of needed that because my brain felt so infested by, um, you know, enemy. It felt like I've been hijacked by a monster. I've been kidnapped by darkness. This is, I deserve this all. And it was, it had too much emotion and romance in it, if that makes sense. It was like a sensationalized kind of illness, probably from watching too much, many horror films and living in a dream world too much. And actually I needed that scientific um, Ruby Wax actually has really good kind of understanding of uh, learning about your brain because it's easy to see it as emotion and that you've been targeted. Whereas if you start seeing it in a sciencey way, you know, basic elementary science, that really helped me understand. So it was good for me to see cold lines for a little bit in my mind. And I'll talk about that afterwards because I, I had to actually relearn self-compassion for myself because I'd almost gotten too stoic like I remember um my therapist being like but with the sleeplessness mm. she was like but you could also have a chamomile tea you, why don't you get yourself a weighted blanket and I was like I shouldn't need a weighted blanket I shouldn't need you know I was quite happy to sleep on a cement floor because <laughs> I was so you know trying to reinforce you know strengthen my CBT skills so you do have to find your own balance but Basically, cognitive behavioural therapy, in short, is rational thinking, which I was extremely irrational. You know, when you're when you're in psychosis, you're not very rational. Um, then again, you go, you're justifying your thoughts all the time. So with suicidal thoughts, for example, you know, looking back, there was even a rationale behind that. I believed the world was a great threat to me or I believed I was going to go on to do something worse than what I would have done in that immediate moment. So there was a sort of logic to it. So actually leaning into the rational side has helped me in my recovery because it's taken away, if this makes sense, guilt and shame because it's maybe going, no, no, but Laura, you were thinking you weren't being selfish in that suicidal act. You were being selfless, if that makes sense, because you were trying to prevent something that could have been worse, which does have a logic to me. I understand. And that helps mm. me live alongside it you're in a burning building you might try and jump to rescue your life that's what I believed my future was it was a giant big burning building I had to basically unlearn how I would exactly as you said see a thought so to me I have to remember that a thought is just a word and a picture or words and pictures and it is not a fact ever as you said so I, I can't be bluffed by it it's okay to have that thought and I don't have to go with it I have to try and see it like a train that goes past or sometimes therapists would suggest it to like you know like those sushi things where like your sushi's going past just because you see a dish you don't have to pick it up you can just let it it's not for you you know mm. being okay and with these thoughts is hard because some of the thoughts 
are very, very upsetting. You know, some of them were that the thoughts my brain was offering to me was really, really dark and really scary. But I don't have to buy into them and I can go, oh, that's just that. And once I started learning the names of things, that's an intrusive thought. That's a, you know, compulsive thought or whatever it was, an anxious thought. It really dialed down the fear. So you kind of label the type of thought that's going on. Yeah. And you do have to be quite meticulous. I remember saying to my, um, so I had a, a, a psychotherapist, but she touched a little bit of CBT and then I went away and the CBT clicked for me by myself, really. But when I was discussing it with her, I said, you know, am I going to have to do this for the rest of my life? And she was like, you might have to, but you know, what other option do you have? So I did it probably for about I don't know, maybe six months to a year, every single day religiously for at least an hour. But now I don't have to, you know, I don't have to do it anymore. But so you basically have a, a, your A, an A, B and a C. So you've got your activating event, your belief towards that event. And then the, uh, I think it's the consequence. See, I can't even remember now, which is brilliant. I'm so happy I can't remember, which is your um, consequences, I think, towards that. So, yeah. And so that you write down, so the activating event can be real or it also can be in the past or the future, but it can be completely imaginary. So let's just say mine is, if I don't sleep tonight, I'll go back to a psychiatric ward again, as I used in that example, I'll, I'll go mad again. Whereas there is absolutely no proof or evidence to suggest that. So my belief, I have to, that's the B bit is the real point, where part where you've got activism. You can go, actually... I don't have to believe that I'm going to... What, what evidence do I have to suggest I'm going to go back to a psychiatric ward again? And you start strengthening your argument against your own beliefs. And that just gives you so much in that very moment power. It makes you feel like, no, I do have a choice here. And even if the worst, worst, worst case scenario does happen again, I've bloody gone, gone and done it once before. I can do it again, you know? And then that reminds you that you feel more empowered in that moment. And you know what? It gives you something to have control of in this otherworldly, you know, completely confusing world that you've fallen into where you have no control at all that one little thing with a biro and a notepad makes you feel like, oh no I've got something here I love that bit where you say you know and then even if I was to get sick again I can tolerate it because you know look what I've tolerated up until now that takes a real sting out of it it's kind of like okay you win all right the thoughts are real all right I'm not going to sleep all right I'm going to go to back to the psychiatric ward aha but I can tolerate that because I already have done right, one. Right, okay, so, so this is it. Re- I, I, it's almost like you're building a case against the gremlin, the meanie, or I, I don't know, whoever it is taking control, infesting your thoughts, as you say. But it's like the the biro and the book and the and the, the answering the questions really just pops it, you know, it takes a sting out of its tail. No, you're totally right. Well, I mean, you can go really far with it, so... For example, they have this, there's this one theory where they talk about 100% bad. So what is, so this is about awfulizing. Like we don't, in CBT, you don't use the word awful. You know, this is awful. It's like, when you think about what awful actually is, they they break this thing down where they say, let's say something that's 100% bad would be, let's say it's being run over by a steamroller is 100% bad. And then there's that this this classic case where someone puts their hand up and goes, yeah, but you could be run over by a steamroller slowly. So then that's even worse. <laughs> and if you break it down backwards, you know, you could say, let's say uh, you say you have an accident, a, a small accident that leaves you with a scar, a small scar on the face for the rest of your life. Let's say that's 5% bad. So 10% would be two scars on your face. You can build up to losing a limb, to losing two limbs, to losing... And then you start working out going, okay, actually losing my job in the grand scheme of things is probably 1% bad. Or you can measure it up. You know, you can work out what you believe 100% bad is and go backwards. And when I did those maths to myself, I was like, maybe what happened to me was only like 20% bad. (laughs) 
And I was like, okay, probably was a bit more than that. But that's when you can start, you know, it, it does help because I go, it's awful, but I've met, you know, obviously this is not um, trauma Olympics and it's not right to compare, but there mm. are people that don't make out this illness the way I have. And I, that in that, my, in my opinion, then it is only 20% bad. There's a lot more percentages of this could have been awful, you know, to make this awful. Mm. And was there a common um, thought that was the kind of hardest thing to shrink in your, in your head? What was it around? I could get ill again, or what if I don't sleep? Was there a, th if that's not too personal, a kind of theme? Not at all. Do you know, I, I know it sounds so ridiculous looking at it now. Um, I've obviously had perspective and I think I just felt so dismantled and broken down. And the irony of that is trying to become a mum whilst also desperately needing your own, looking after a baby whilst feeling like a baby. Um, I couldn't eat. I would forget time was so abstract. I had no... They tried to, you know, give me structure at the hospital and routine, but I didn't know, you know, I was I was literally wearing a nappy again because you bleed so much, even though I had an emergency cesarean, I was bleeding and my hygiene was out of the window, all of these things. You know, I was coping, but I, I wasn't a woman, you know, I, and I just, you know, thought, okay, before this happened, I was pretty all right with who I was. I lost everything in terms of, not everything in my life, but everything in myself of what I... I knew how to identify as I, I, all those basic, basic things went out of the window and that's your foundation. So I guess the sleep thing was the trigger. I, after the hospital, after having jet, I didn't sleep for, I don't think more than an hour. I had one night on medication where I slept. And then other than that, I didn't sleep for one hour in over three weeks and it, I felt like a fairy tale sort of story princess that the whole town was waiting to sleep, you know, and then obviously that just pushed sleep further and further away. So I was on a lot of medication to help me sleep, to keep me stable that I won't lie, you know, as you know, when you've had a child, everything's centered around sleep anyway, because it's all about them and their naps and their newborn things. And it was weird because Jet was sleeping and I wasn't, and it just felt broken. I felt so weird that... We were all, you know, I was trying to go to play group or see other mums or talk to other parent, new parents and they were all tired because the baby was waking them up. I was tired because I wasn't sleeping or if I was, it was because I needed an enormous amount of medication to make me sleep. So I think I felt broken and I had to learn with, you know, my therapist would ask, but okay, what's going to be, she, cause she, at, weirdly, she doesn't sleep. So she was like, I don't sleep very well. I just get on with it. And I see it as my cozy time. You know, I read a book or I watch a film or I catch up with some washing or ironing or, you know, whatever. And I was, I remember looking at her like, she's insane. Like, like, how can you just do that? And I realized it was my attitude towards it. Now, if I wake up early, which sometimes happens, you know, I might wake up at four if Jet wakes me up and I can't get back to sleep. I'll go, oh good. I've got two hours before he wakes up. I'll I'll catch up with some work or I'll, I'll write for myself or I'll read a book. I cannot believe that I think of it like that now. And CBT helped me change my perception towards an event that is out of my control. It's not my fault I couldn't sleep. That's, a, that's it, really. I thought it was my fault that I wasn't able to sleep. Why am I broken? Why am I not like everybody else? So it sounds to me like how you react to an issue plays a huge part in mental well-being. Totally. If you can give yourself a break, that self-compassion you were talking about, totally. that's a different 4am till 7am compared to a 4am to 7am 
panic. Look, people have psychosis, psychotic experiences or episodes, and they lean into it. They don't medicate because they and they see angels or they hallucinate. They they don't mind it because they're at, they understand it. They don't medicate. I don't want to see that stuff. I don't feel good with it. I don't feel and my delusions were none of them were positive. You know, they all made me feel terrible. So that's really it. It's the individual. And if it makes you feel scared or uncomfortable and it doesn't serve you or help you, then that's the time when you need help. But Laura, it's just so incredible that you kind of turned yourself into this scientist and read so many books and listened to these podcasts. Like you were also, can we just flag up the fact that you had a tiny baby and were sick? How did you... That's remarkable. When you look back at those notes, how do you feel? I actually saw them the other day because I'm um, we're adapting the book for TV at the moment, and uh, I oh, opened some of them. Oh, that's exciting! Oh well, uh, most of them are thrown away. I threw nearly everything away. Why it didn't really help? The hospital were calling me Lucy for the majority of the time. Really, not what I needed when I was in. It was like Lucy. Uh, I was like, okay. But going back, I threw a lot of it away. But I did find my um, notes and um, everything I read or you know, listened to and say my CBT, I did nearly all of it with Jet on my chest, which I I didn't fortunately have any negative feelings towards Jet, which by the way, if anybody listening did or does, you know, it's not your fault. And so nobody should compare or think bad judgment on that. You know, my brain at points was flirting with the idea and wanting me to have to physically crowbar my brain. That's where I think hysterical strength, because, you know, that's hysterical strength where women can like lift cars when it's like about to crush their children, they can suddenly lift the car. I honestly felt my brain experienced hysterical strength to be able to not think of negative thoughts towards my son. So writing, reading everything I did, I did it with him on my body the entire time. And it wasn't one thing that fixed me combined with medication and seeing a therapist and giving myself just as much time as I needed. You know, it was, I must get better. I must, you know, be a good mum. I must recover all of this stuff. I must get back to who I was. And do you think your partner or your friends, your family, did they see a change in you, a kind of, were they even able to sort of spot you catch yourself and sort of see in action this new pathway being created and you were able they saw this change definitely and I taught my sister it and we did it together and my two of my best friends I've done it with them and we learned it all and that's what I was saying you know I joke about it in the book but you know we do any problem we write it down and we you know there's in a simple form there's this thing called the worry tree which is really great which is you know what is your worry um, let's say, you know, my little boy not wanting to go to school today. So he doesn't want to go to school today. So what are you worried about? You know, I don't want to go to school today. Can you change something about that? Then you, if so, go and do it. You write down what it is you want to change it. Great. Uh, if you can't change that, stop worrying about it. It's as simple as that. And it feels so harsh, <laughs> but actually if you still, I still use the worry tree. I keep it on my phone. Mindfulness. I tried all that stuff. I, I did. I, I got, I did like everyone else. I got the app and I did all that. And um, actually, it just felt like having a sort of private dinner date with my depression, you know? It was like just me locked in my mind. CBT is so active. It feels like you're doing something. That's the thing. When you've been ill or you're ill, a lot of it is being patient and waiting out. 
People don't understand that when you're going through something, especially psychosis, it's seen as a medical emergency. You don't have time. Yeah, you might not be bleeding from your limbs, but in your brain, your mind is having a heart attack. You haven't got time. You know, it is ambulance scenario. So doing CBT is a really great thing you can do to sort of feel like you're doing something about it, you know, without making loads of calls or running to the ambulance or, you know, obviously if it is an emergency, you get to it, but it's a way to wait it out while you're waiting for drugs to kick in or whatever it is. You feel active and like you're doing something for yourself. You do have a power. It's amazing that you found the right thing for you. And like you said, it's it's different for everyone. Have you, can you talk a little bit about your work with other survivors and other people that you've met who had postpartum psychosis and what have you discovered through that that kind of connection the different things that work for people sure well first of all cbt doesn't work for everyone which is as you said which is a real shame because it's like the first thing i always say to people that are in recovery is that and not everyone gets on with it you know i was anti-medso and i I took those and, and again for the medication when you get to the uh you know finish line he doesn't go, oh, you finished, but you, you get a bronze because you took meds. Do you know what I mean? It's not, it's not, you're not less because you took help. It's however you get to the island, you get there. So I work closely with Action Postpartum Psychosis, who I'm an ambassador for, which even, I didn't even really acknowledge that when I'm so sure, Abby, that this illness was going to kill me. Honestly, I never, anyway, I, my friends, you know, the other day, not even longer, I put my card in the cash point just to take out some money to go to a food market and she literally said before I said it no not welling up because this is so amazing for you to put your card in the cash point to go to a food market because that's what I'm like I'm like oh my god it's Christmas I can't believe I'm here oh my god I'm breathing air oh my god it's Tesco's like it's like having a passport for life now after surviving suicide it's amazing (laughs) so when they asked me to be an ambassador, I was kind of like me. Like it just, it almost feels too, it feels like, a, again, a delusion in itself that that would happen, that, I, that I've made it and now asked to be. You know what's the most amazing thing about other people that survive it is the humour. You know, it is wild. And at the time, it is the cruelest illness because not only are you surviving, which is honestly lifting daily, daily weights, you know, in your mind, you are like, an athlete pumping away when you're surviving it's when people say it's weak with mental illness it's the complete opposite because doing a basic thing a physical thing or a psychological thing when you're unwell is like lifting you know tons and tons and tons so it's the strongest thing ever plus as you say you've got a newborn who really needs you and not your friend or your grandma or your mom you know they need you and you're not there you know it's so mean um, this illness but afterwards it's hilarious you know I've spoke to, spoken to mums who have dragged down Christmas trees at Christmas being in the psychiatric ward of a mum who you know fell through a glass ceiling or and survived and just got up like it was nothing you know this kind of turbo animalistic strength you know I'm vegetarian I was ripping off chicken carcasses like with my bare hands drinking water jugs of water like from you know pumping my boobs like in front of my dad you know when I think about that but I have to laugh because I was thinking I'm imagining the tv adaptation of your book it's going to be hilarious you need the light you do because it helps you laughter I think it's Hannah Gadsby her amazing show on Netflix, Nanette, her one woman show where um, she speaks about mm. feminism and assault. Unfortunately, she was she was assaulted and the humour in that. And she talks about why she talks about her trauma through comedy, because the very act of laughter relaxes us. And so much of this is 
what, what, that's why I don't understand when they say mental health or physical health, because it's all the same, you know. If I have an unhelpful thought, I feel it flood around my body. I, I get patchy. I feel tingly. I feel sick. I might need to go to the toilet. You know, I feel queasy. I feel dizzy. I feel lightheaded, all these things. When you laugh, it's impossible when you're laughing to actually feel anxious, if that makes sense, because you're relaxed. It physically relaxes and it's infectious. And, it, you know, I do probably use humour also as a reflex, but I'm also using it because I want people to talk about it. I hated that patch when I'd come out of hospital and people had knew where I'd been and people were just looking at me with these big, starey eyes, like, oh, uh, I, I didn't want that. You know, I wanted to go, what the f- was that? Can we talk about that? Because I didn't ask for it and it's a human condition and we're all human beings. And why didn't anybody tell me? Mm. The joke of it is, is everybody's running around with the same shame of the same things. You know, what, what we believe is the most personal is actually the most universal. It doesn't discriminate. It, nobody is immune. And as soon as we, you know, I go to type spaghetti on my phone and it will go schizophrenia. You know, I'll write inside and it will go insomnia. <laughs> and I'm like, no, not now autocorrect. But I, I'm, I'm happy that these... So the phone's yeah. got the phones on. I, I, want, I want these things to be in my vocabulary. I, I, it helps me talking about suicide because then I'm not frightened of that really scary word. It's just a word. I'd use big words as well, words that people don't always like, but like mad or whatever, because I don't want to say I was unwell all the time because that mm. feeling unwell was like a snotty cold. This is not a snotty cold. No. And you say quite clearly in the book that recovery isn't linear mm, no and it's very it's a really hard read to think that it sort of only really begins from when you get home you kind of want as as a reader or you want in life to think oh good now she's done that bit in the psych ward so back to normal now and it's sort of just the start that's when the oh depression God. comes so how did you hold on and kind of keep at therapy or CBT or staying on the meds or which, whichever one it was, just how did you not run for the hills? Because there must have been times, like you said, if you had shame associated with meds or if the CBT was getting too hard or pedantic, as you say, like, oh, this is not me. You kept showing up, though. How? how, how? You're literally, I, I didn't think I was going to cry today because you're so bright and funny, but this as well uh, made me emotional because... The hospital was hard, really hard. But first of all, they throw you into therapy. You don't have to go. I didn't. I met someone actually who'd been in the same hospital as me. She was like, you know, you didn't have to go to all of that. And I was like, oh, you're joking. <laughs> She's like, you know, it's optional, the therapy. I was like, huh? I was literally be there, you know, almost shoes shined, you know, polished, full belly, ready, full of breakfast, sharp, you know, pen at the ready, in psychosis. But that's because... I, I should say I believe there was a custody battle in my mind that I had to kind of show up to all my classes and be an A-grade student. I wasn't taking anything in. All I was doing was sitting there in psychosis, bleeding onto a chair like a nine-year-old at school. No, not a nine-year-old. They don't have periods at nine. 13 at school. I feel like I was bleeding onto a chair. But the thing about hospital is... It was so bombastic and huge. There was no other option. You know, it was panic stations. She needs to be in hospital. So it was a phase, even though it was hell, hell on actual earth, I knew I had to be there and at least I was safe. First of all, I was home for a week on my own, but I wasn't allowed to be on my own with Jet. That week was awful because my trust was basically being tested against myself, if that makes sense. I don't think I've ever even made this point before, but I was basically... It was like the ultimate being my biggest fear. 
you know, going, okay, you're now out of hospital. I probably came out of hospital a week too early, but that was probably because I believed I had a custody battle I needed to get to and needed to get my Jackie Brown two-piece suit on so I looked really good in the um, in the court. But that was why I got out quickly, because I had another delusion going on. Every day they ask you, they make you tick a box, you know, like three times a day, uh, thoughts of self-harm, suicide, absconding. I'd be like, what does that word actually mean? Um, running away, you know, all these things, eating hygiene. And I got to the point where I, it, you're battling yourself. You're like, do I tell the truth? Because if I tell the truth, I'm still suicidal. They're going to make me stay here longer. They're going to probably up my drugs or whatever, or monitor me more. And it's not going to look good. But at the same time, I so badly know I need help and I'm not well. So this is the point where you have to start trusting yourself again. Always say the truth, you know, tell the truth. And I did come out of hospital it was okay because there's a little bit of fuss around you when you first come out. You know, your friends want to see you and I didn't want to do that. But as you say, I showed up and I went through the motions. It was painful. My self-esteem was below zero. Any nice thing that anyone would say to me, I'd be like, Hugo's told them to say that. They're only saying that to keep me alive for one more minute so that Jet has a mum. Then I'll be put in my mum's top room in her attic, you know, where I'll live there for the rest of my days and see Jet once a month. I honestly believe that was my future. Plus... I felt like I'd taken time out, you know, like I'd gone to a like, you know, I didn't go to a snorkeling trip in the Maldives for two weeks. I was in a psychiatric ward. I felt so bad, like I'd abandoned my life, my child. Hugo had never even held a newborn before, you know, and he was on his own. So, yeah, afterwards was actually, as you say, I, I thought this will I'll come out and it will be, yeah, hooray. And actually rock bottom, I, I'd never even known mm. a bottom like that. And actually, I'll say again, that's where the CBT became my... Do you know what? I think my writing, now I'm here, so I'm talking to you at my desk. I, how I look at my desk, it's like a base. I know people have it with their yoga mats or their prayer mats, don't they? Like, it, it's just a place you can come to. A mini mm. church, I suppose, in your house. My Peloton bike is a little bit like it. <laughs> and sometimes I'd have to pick it up five or six times a day, the CBT. And I have it all in a file. And it just felt that was my only safe space. I, I just felt like I was just privately glitching, you know, fading away and... It would only be a matter of time until the inevitable, really. And I, I didn't want my child to know me like that because that's not the Laura that I knew. But it's just so amazing you've come through it. <laughs> Does it feel like you're talking about someone else or is it still you but you know how to be safe It's now? harder when I talk to people I knew before, like you, Abby, because I, you know, it's more of a reminder of that, but... I'm better than that now, than than her now, because I feel more empathetic, more understanding. I, I feel more kind. I feel the universe. I feel more plugged into everything. I know this sounds so cheesy. I'm so sorry, but I feel more plugged into like the trees and nature and everything. And I, I understand it more. You know, I, I literally can go to myself now like, yeah, but what's, what's the point in anything? You know, I don't mind falling over in the street, tripping over, you know, in the street and things running out or things not going my way because I understand that, ah, uh, it almost goes far to say, you know, I, I didn't deserve this, but nobody deserves anything good or bad you know there is no such thing as good or bad as as open as that I feel so grateful for it I really do you know I wouldn't want to do it again but I do feel grateful um do I feel like someone else I feel like I try and I don't want to get upset you know but there are I needed this I needed it I needed it (laughs) oh you're right yeah I am 
I am. I'm good. And um, good. I, I just think, you know, coming through these things, this is, you know, the, the strong woman I always wanted to be when I look at Spice Girls and be like, I want to be a strong woman. Now I, I am one, basically. I should go get my belly button pierced, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also redefining strength because I don't know about you, but I definitely had that, like, perfectionist mm. tendency of just try and be the best all the time. Like I can, I can really see uh, I very much relate to sort of the good girl going to every therapy mm. session as, as you say like that idea that life is sort of one big trial and you've got to defend even when I argue with my partner sometimes I'm listening to myself and I'm like oh my god who do I mm. think I am what courtroom mm. have I just and I like to get into kind of hyper hyper like you know really wordy and how can I kind of win and it's a sort of some weird perfectionist competitive like I also like strength being just not any of that either just accepting vulnerability that's it strength is also doing nothing I know that sounds so just doing nothing at all oh you're right that's it because you think I've got to read all the books and do this and get strong and physically eat all my meals and actually letting yourself be a tiny little thing being you know letting the wind just blow you away you will land just it's being patient and it's really hard if you're someone like us that always got to be doing something to just trust. I mean, did you, did anyone get a bit worried and try and sort of say, step away from the CBT <laughs> workbook, let, let it, let it settle I just today? Did you go into overdrive yeah, on that or did, did you manage yeah. to kind of come yeah, back? Yeah, I probably did. And I remember saying to my therapist, like, uh, no, actually not my therapist, my psychiatrist, like, it's this is amazing, this is amazing. And I was like, and he went, you're going to need CBT to stop doing CBT. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, I yeah, am actually. <laughs> um, but I remember that same day, actually, I was just saying, I was it was in Marlebone where I was because all those doctors are all over there. And that's even scary in itself. I used to think this is a horror town. What is this horrible Gothic horror town? It was near Christmas. So Jet would have been about, you know, 10 months old or something. And I suddenly just looked around. And obviously Marlebone is like one of the most beautiful places in London. And I suddenly just looked around and it was like bloody Tinseltown. It was like something out of a storybook. You know, the lights, it was like early evening, you know, like five o'clock and everything was just golden and glowing and lit and festive and everyone was happy. And it was like the first time I saw London as beautiful again and not scary. And as soon as he said that, I I just felt, yeah, I'm okay to maybe have some time I just no started noticing that I'd go two days forget to naturally do CBT you know I just forget and now I don't do it anymore I, I do it in my brain a little bit if I have to over something small if, for example you know a friend doesn't text you back you think they hate you and it's like no they're probably just mm, busy classic. <laughs> and um that I, you know things like that over and over again uh I, I know how to deal with those little things now and they do add up if you let them get to you so Literally, every, probably nearly every night I put my head on the pillow. I go, what if I don't sleep? A little voice goes, what if you don't sleep? Then I go, so what? Mm. And then I'm like, oh, yeah. And then sometimes I even go, how about we try not to sleep and see what happens there? And then, of course, I'm fast asleep within a second. Oh, the mind is mad. I know, oh. I know. I know. But you've got the rational voice. So, okay, you've said the Blind Boy yeah. podcast. Was there any book, or for anyone listening who hasn't tried it, who's like, this is kind of sounding like my bag. I want to give this a go. Have you got a few books you would recommend? Yeah, I do. Well, the books of Wendy Dryden were really useful. Wendy writes a lot about, and, and I think Wendy has experienced anxiety for himself. So his books are really great on 
Understanding Anxiety, Albert Ellis. There's a book, actually, I'm pretty sure that it is Albert Ellis's book, where it says something like how to not get miserable about absolutely anything ever. It's got like a really wordy title like that, but that was really, really useful for me. And 10 Steps to Positive Living. But my most favourite book of all is um, Self-Help for Your Nerves by Dr. Claire Weeks, which is a small little skinny book. It's really, really mean. <laughs> I've bought it. I haven't oh started my it yet. God. But after I read your book, I was like, I'm buying it's that. Really, is it, why is it mean? It's like, I mean, I've watched videos on her and she's just, it's not a new book. So the voice is quite old. You know, she says things like yield, but... It's a skinny little book and she sits with you. It feels like, it felt like the first person that was sitting with me. This is the thing, This all this stuff is off-putting if the language is too doctory. What you need so badly when you're going through this is warmth and humans and love and to be held and looked after and someone going, take as long as you need. I dream about these cultures where you have a mental illness and the whole world stops in their tracks and they just wrap you up in big blankets and duvets and goes, take all the time you need, you know, and sort of feed you soup, you know. It doesn't exist in London. It's like, snap, 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 get on with it, on with it, on with it. Ooh, shame, like ostracised, all this stuff. Mm. So... That book, that what I need there, I was finding that hard to come by. You've got to find that in your own love. And um, But this book, mm. she says things like, do not, like, almost like, why would you let these thoughts bluff you? Why have you forgotten that you have power? You know, it's kind of this sort of tone, which I actually really need that. So maybe I just respond really well to a good telling off. But there was something in there. I genuine, be, genuinely believe Claire Weeks wants you to get better. And I could feel it in the writing. And, mm. you know, sometimes I sense it in my own book where I'm kind of speaking with that same urgency. But that was that's a kind of passionate voice that I, I believe in that. And she, she, she's the one that taught me the float mantra, which is um, float past fear intention, float past unwanted suggestions, float, don't fight, accept and let more time pass. And floating, you know, she'd say she, she would work with clients that couldn't even get food to their mouth, that couldn't even walk through a door. And she'd say, well, don't then, just float, float the fork to your mouth, you know, float through the door rather than, you know, you think you've got to be pounding in, you know, actively recovering and just float, float to sleep. Yeah, there's something so yeah, punishing is. in the active part, the float. There's something so gentle. Well, the word itself just ignites those feelings, doesn't it, of being gentle with yourself. And then the Nigel Slater podcast, when, oh, the self-compassion bit was the best because when I really learned, I was like, oh, yeah, I could be nice to myself in all of this. I didn't do anything wrong. Didn't run away and have an affair and cheat on my family. And I got unwell. It wasn't my fault. So, Wait, is Nigel Slater the... Nigel Slater the cook. Oh, he's got a podcast. He's got a podcast called Christmas Chronicles. What? He, in the countdown to Christmas what? in the first year I was unwell, he had he did a podcast every single day for a month. So I would do Blind Boys, the hardcore stuff. And then, same with Blind Boy though, he's your friend. You know, he swears, he's normal, he chugs a vape as he's yeah. giving you this wisdom. He forgets things, he adds it, you know, it's brilliant. And he doesn't mind being out there, you know. He had an anxious thought when he was a, when he was younger that he believed he was half an hour. And I was like, oh. I get that. I totally can understand that because that's oh. how poorly I was too. Yeah. So he doesn't mind saying these thoughts that are out there. And then I'd do, you know, Nigel Slater roasting a ham or making gingerbread. And I'd be like, I've earned this. <laughs> but food, cooking, 
friends, family, being really kind to myself, buying myself candles. But probably also, in truth, although I hate to be, one of the other things that's really helped me is giving up booze. Mm. Yeah, that's such a yeah, mood. because it's just like pouring petrol all over it. Yeah, so that's helped me too. And just seeing my son grow, you know, being got, I got married to Hugo last year. Oh, congratulations. And I was like, oh, so you do fancy me still? You do. <laughs> oh, I well, it's interesting because my um, we're in Camden and my uh, kids at school, the Camden mental health team now do little messages that it, they just get pinged to all the parents' phones every week through the school. You know, like one meal time a week, oh, I'll read out the lovely. message from the mental health team and. They write it. It's funny. Of all the books I've read, of all the things I've listened to, nothing works for me personally better than when it's written as if for like a five-year-old. So true. They are so kind and they're so warm because they think so true. Know, this is for a child. Um, so I'm going to wrap up this clever message with so much love and heart because I'm speaking to a child. But as an adult, that's oh. what I need as well. Well, that's really true interesting. because when you're unwell, you are your child self. They say that, you're driven only by two things in life, by fear or love. And I, that helps me for everything. If I get a little bitchy message from, you know, my sister or a friend, whatever, I go, that is fear driving you or that is love, you know, and it helps me. All that was driving me when I was ill was both, you know, fear and love at the same time, speeding and motoring me and tearing me apart and obliterating me, all those things. That was my primal active, like, you know, cave woman self in all of that. So I was a little child, completely helpless, acting on... There was none of myself that I'd learned. You know, that was all stripped away. So, yeah, do treat me like a child. Mm. You know, it's a paradox because I believed everybody was talking about me, you know, but they were for, for my benefit. But, you know, when you're paranoid, you've got conspiracy theories, delusions, everyone's talking about me. But I said to my sister's partner, I was like, it's a bit like, you know, planning a surprise party for me. He was like, yeah, a bit just to get you to a psychiatric ward. <laughs> but, um, oh, my God. Yeah, the warmth, that's all you need is that. So it's it's CBT, time, patience, but it's also a lot of self-compassion. Don't think I'm not scared for the menopause when those menopause rumble down. <laughs> I know I'll be in there again. Oh, Reserve gosh, me a bed. Yeah. Reserve me a bed. I'll be in oh, there again. Oh, my God. I know. Bloody hell. Then I'll do a new book and I'll put my face on the next one and I'll be there all sexy. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Sexy menopause shot. What, what did I do? The sexy menopause. <laughs> oh, Laura, this has been so good. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for asking me to do it. Thank you for listening to Paige. If you've got a moment, I'd love it if you could rate and review this episode to help me get the word out and keep the show going. You can also find great photos and information about next episodes over on Twitter and Instagram at Abbyholic. Oh, and please subscribe. Did I say that? Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Page is a Good Tape production. Produced by me, Abby Hollick. Original music by Paddy Jervis and Rob Sell for Torch and Compass. Sound engineer support from Hunter Charlton and Chris Sharp. Graphic design from Tim Hughes. Thanks, team. <laughs> <laughs>